and welcome to another episode of the Barefoot Mediator podcast, news and views from Jane Gunn and guests. In this episode, I speak with Andrew Payne, who is a motivational mental health speaker focusing on men's mental health and masculinity. We discuss the challenging topics arising for both men and women in society and the need for more open dialogue, allyship and community support in owning and debating some tough issues that impact us all. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, it really is. I've been looking forward so much to this, and um, I know I'm, I'm going to ask you later about baking, because I've seen that you do uh, baking. You've recently taken up baking, so you're not only a speaker, but you're a baker. But we'll yeah. come on to that. Now. I, I would just say not a masterful baker yet, but <laughs> a, a work in progress. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, well, look, Andrew, tell us a little bit about you and what you do. I know your main area of work uh, as a speaker and a coach is around men's mental health, which is a huge issue right now. Yeah, no, so that's the main sort of piece of work that I lead with. I have other things that, that fit around that, but really working councils, NHS trusts, um, large businesses, talking about men's mental health. Why are men and boys struggling? What are we going to do about it? And also try to unpack some of these modern buzzwords, some of which are really helpful, some of which less, you know, allyship, intersectionality, gamma bias. What do these actually mean? Unpacking what they mean, thinking that through toxic masculinity. That's a bit of a buzzword, isn't it? But actually, is that really the most helpful phrase to use when engaging our young men? And we've also heard the phrase toxic femininity aired on Love Island. I have my own view on those phrases and what we should do with those phrases, mostly put them in the bin and forget about them because they're not helpful for a few reasons. So these are some of the things we talk about in order to create helpful conversation, in order to improve male mental health. I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast would love to be part of a generation where the suicide stats are either reliably zero year on year or so substantially slashed that something good happened, obviously, in our understanding. And I'm sure everyone on this podcast wants a healthy group of young, respectful, dynamic men who are not drawn to the darker places of the internet and the Andrew Tate nonsense, but in which case there's work to do. And, I, and I'm passionate about that work. I have my own journey with men, mental health and I have three boys under 10. So I have vested interests in being involved in this field. So, Andrew, just go back. You don't I mean, you need to give your entire history, but there's a reason why you work in this field, isn't there? And do you want to just explain what that what that is? Yeah. So I, I in a former marriage uh, going some years ago now, I was the long term victim of domestic uh, abuse, which included uh, physical violence and abuse, which was 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 really tough to go through and had a real impact on my mental health. And part of, without going into huge detail on that, it's a long time ago now, although I do still talk about aspects of that, you know, I never knew back then that a third of victims of domestic abuse are men. I just thought I was the only one stupid enough to be in this situation. It was obviously all my fault. So when it was always kicking off as, as it was, I always felt it was my fault. I provoked this. So I was in long-term counselling, not because of the domestic abuse, because I didn't see it as domestic abuse. I was in long-term counselling in order to become a better husband who didn't keep provoking his wife. And obviously 
part of gaslighting, another modern term, uh, is where there's a long-term campaign from an abusive person to make you doubt your own intuition and judgment so that that abusive person can get away with their behavior and you never question it. And, and certainly that was pre prevalent. There, there were challenges, you know, men and women face horrendous challenges when they're the victims of domestic abuse. A particular challenge for men is that to, to, to what point do you defend yourself? And, and, and so to give you a very brief example, which I think is relevant to men's mental health, and I often talk about the candlestick story. It sounds like a moment from an Agatha Christie movie, but um, it was at the end of our relationship, I'd actually woken up and smelt the coffee. Uh, my wife had slung me out. I'd had several months so now just living down the road in a bungalow, several months to like, think about it and like and sort of get a sense of what's going on. She then came back several months later. Uh, she arrived at my bungalow wanting to patch things up. We'd been going to marriage guidance. So she assumed that I still did. But now I wasn't so sure. I'd had a couple of months out of this. And because I was like, I'm not sure I want to come back into this. She uh, reached, reached for a candlestick, slammed me over the head with it. It was like a, a metal. It wasn't like a heavy candlestick, but it was made of like metal. I remember the first slam, she was a strong woman. My head just like feeling like it was splitting. It wasn't bleeding at this point, but it was a real thwack. And when she came to do it again, I was like, I can't have a second one of those blows on my head. I don't know what will happen. So I, I jumped up, grabbed her wrists. And then there's like a bit of a wrestle across the sitting room because she's trying to bite my face. I'm trying to keep her arm's length. And I push her hard onto the sofa and run the hell out of that building. And I don't go back into that building till her car's gone. I wait an extra sort of 20 minutes or so. But in the point of this story... The next day, I get a call from a good friend of mine saying, hey, dude, like, what just happened last night? She's on the school run. She's got bruises on her arm. She's saying you're beating her up. And I, it was there's the shame factor. There were some rumours. It was a small village. I was living abroad at the time that there was a group of men coming to sort me out because I was a wife beater. So should I arm myself? Should I be prepared for a fight? Am I going to fight them? Uh, how many of them are there? Just the shame. Uh, several days later, it's my turn to do the school run. All the dagger eyes from all the other parents. It was horrendous. And so there, there's lots of elements to being a victim of domestic abuse, whether you're a man or a woman. And it was really tough. And, and when I came out of that relationship, I had a couple of years where I was totally burnt out, living in my parents' bedroom without a job. I don't think I could have worked. And it took me a while to repair. And I suppose that experience, coming out of that experience, has given me my passion for men's mental well-being. But not to forget that actually... This, you know, women suffer too. The, the greater proportion of victims of domestic abuse are women. Let's not lose sight of that either. And uh, it's my privilege, actually. I will say this. I've met some extraordinary women. Check this one out, where they are passionate advocates for male victims of domestic abuse. Some of the most passionate advocates you'll meet. And yet they themselves have been victims of domestic abuse, these women, where their perpetrators are male. What remarkable women they are! So there's a lot to uh, there's a lot to your story there, Andrew, and I I can understand why you have the passion for the for your work that you do and an amazing work to to be doing at this time because I think we seem to have got into a place where uh, you know we almost operate in silos, don't we, men and women, and and thinking that we've got different agendas in the world when actually maybe. Um, we're suffering some of the same challenges, but we're just not seeing them in the same way. And we're not really helping each other with some of these terms that you started with. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, and that's where allyship comes up. Uh, there's a fantastic example of allyship in Rutger Bregman's book, Humankind, which, which I do recommend. And it's where really you choose 
to understand another group's history, their journey, their hopes, their fears, even if it sort of contradicts the journey, hopes and fears of your group, and it's hard to take. And there's a wonderful example of this in South Africa in 1993, where they're poised for the elections. It looks like it's going to be a bloodbath. The African Liberation Movement, there's 150,000 armed people calling for war. If you remember Eugene Terra Blanche at the head of that movement, and it looked like it was going to be a bloodbath. But there was a, a chance clandestine meeting between Nelson Mandela and one of the leaders of the African movement, who was really considered the brain within that movement behind the, the Eugene Terra Blanche. His name was Constant Viljoen. And one of the things Constant Viljoen said about that meeting with Nelson Mandela was Mandela served him tea, but he was blown away by what Nelson Mandela knew about his people, their challenge, their struggles, their journey, their struggles with the British, how much more. Also, he what Mandela wanted to learn more about it during this meeting. He really wanted to take the time and, and talk and sort of uh, be compassionate and sympathetic to what the African people had been through. Yet these are the people that are oppressing Nelson Mandela's people. And it was that chance meeting that um, really prompted Constant Phil Joan to step aside and say, I, I'm I'm not part of this, which caused huge, huge implications within the African resistance movement. But that that was a masterclass of allyship from Nelson Mandela. But we can do the same too. Men can be allies for women. Women can be allies for men. We should be looking out for other groups and saying, right, I'm going to improve my knowledge here, and I'm going to hear it from the horse's mouth. As, as probably not the best phrase to use, but I'm going to ask the right questions, and I'm going to open my mind, even if it what I learn is going to be painful and, and goes against what I've previously thought. I'm going to make sure I do it. What did it cost Nelson Mandela to really be in that frame of mind? That must have been really hard to do, but so impactful. But that's true listening, Andrew. Listening is not just hearing what you've got to say, but it's wanting to know more and go deeper. And I get the sense that at the moment, we don't want to dive deeper into a lot of these issues. We want to use common phrases and terms and to either cancel or other people and just say you know that's all I know about you but when you dive deeper and hear someone's story and their needs and their interests and their fears and their concerns that's the foundation of being able to move forward and find some common ground maybe or uh, some alternatives and it's certainly the process we follow in mediation when we're trying to resolve problems between two groups or two peoples is to do that deep digging and that understanding and that listening. Yeah, 100, 100%. And I think in a way that moves us to, you know, in terms of how we work with, with young men, particularly at the moment, as we've seen in the press, the the, the need for uh, PHSE lessons where where men are taught to not harass and and the 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 the, the problems with their their violent tendencies and misogyny and and actually we need to remember that for many of these young men what what is the journey they've been on they, they didn't ask for the internet to be invented they didn't ask for mobile phones to be invented nor did they ask for internet porn to be invented and we know that 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 is a big issue of course today it, it's not really their fault that they find themselves in the situation that they're in, many of them will have uh, additional problems, additional barriers. And I do think there is a need for compassion, for understanding, for balance in the way that we approach these problems rather than some kind of knee-jerk reaction. I don't think the media are particularly helpful, but of course they have to sell 
papers and sell advertising space. So they're going to they're going to put these slogans forward that make us sit up. Um, whereas a more balanced, thoughtful headline, is that going to really make you turn the page and read? Maybe not. Yeah, I I remember one of my mediator colleagues uh, who talked about how a tribal society might deal with um, a rebelling teenager. And if the teenager had, got, uh, had gone off and done something that upset the community, the community would sit down and not blame the teenager. They would say, what have we as a community done to facilitate this situation it's all of our faults in a way. We need to look at this holistically, if you like, all of us. Well, together. I think that's absolutely right. And I don't want to bash the word. I know holistically, there's lots of holistic coaches and holistic dietitians. And you're like, oh, give me a break. But actually, the word holistic is, is an important exactly. word. It's like a real 360 degree, as you say, deep dive. All the, But yeah, we, we, we really need to get better at doing that. And uh, even like, uh, and also not, not being afraid to think robustly as long as the research and the evidence is there. I mean, in, in the Holland, uh, another headline that's come out in the last couple of days, they banned mobile phones in schools from 2024. That's it. It's a ban. Now, that's whatever you may think of that. And th there's lots of people saying, but but then children, some children will be at disadvantage and all the rest of it. But when it comes to some of the things that we allow in our society, such as internet porn, where there's not a huge amount of controls, and we know how, you know, yes, uh, I think according to some statistics I read yesterday, 69% of people accessing porn in, in the UK are men, 31% of women, which I thought, I'm surprised that's so high. But listen, if that's what the data says, that's what the data says. But we allow these things to happen. And I think in thinking about young men and, and their mental well-being, we need to be able to have open conversations uh, without shame. Uh, we need to be able to have conversations about robust action, actually, and, and maybe robust action is what it takes. And the, the thing in Netherlands, in, in Holland, I'd be really interested to see what comes out of that. Does it improve educational standards? Does it create what, what it's an interesting one because it's going to be a national thing. So we're going to get a very good sample size. Very interesting because there's a retreat that I have been uh, running uh, for a number of years up in Yorkshire. And for many, many years, there has been no phone signal when you're on this retreat, you're on retreat. No phone signal. That's an outrage. That's against their human rights. How dare you? This is the thing. <laughs> you know, you just find people are more present. They just know their phone doesn't work. They've actually got to go down the road and stand on a stile if they really want to ring home, but actually can't do it. And... It does make a difference. It does make a difference. So you don't have lots of delegates standing there with their arms in the air at the style when they should be in session. No. no. <laughs> long to accept it, I think. It does Excellent. accept it. It's not it's not there, so I can't I can't use it. Um I I get a sense that as a society, we're all addicted to a lot of things and mobile phone and that addiction and understanding addictive behavior is one of the things we ought to be acknowledging, perhaps. Um, I'm not sure I know what the answers to these things are, but I think when we do a deep dive and see what the problems are, one of the things you talk about is critical thinking. I get the sense we don't really think critically about a lot of these issues. We think in terms of headlines and um and drama and and questioning everything and questioning where does the data come from who's provided that statistics who benefits from that 
what other ways are there of seeing this? That's one of the things, again, we would do in a sort of mediation process is looking much more widely and much more deeply at an issue. And is there a danger where, like with all the dopamine hits that we all experience as adults, and if I post something on LinkedIn and for some reason it gets loads of engagements and likes, it's like, ooh, that was a good post. Was it a good post? Was it any better than the post the other day? Or if there's somebody with huge levels of engagement, you think, what have they got that I haven't? Well, they've probably got a LinkedIn pod that they've signed up to and they like. But the, the point is, I think because we want this kind of instant likes, hits, engagement, it, it, we, we do want to trot out these 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 sensationalist terms. There isn't time to really think through, actually, well, where do... Actually, I'm not going to... This is an unhelpful conversation. I'm not going to get involved. I, I think we, we we crave that affirmation. And so we, we just jump into so many conversations that we know very little about, actually, with our opinions. And maybe there's a need for us to step back a bit more often and just check what we know to be right to check some of the uh, statistics it, it doesn't take an awful lot to, to read something and go oh that's weird I wonder where that came you know and then start checking back so one of my favorite things is there's a, there was a some clickbaity stats on, on decision making because we're talking about it that the average person makes 35,000 decisions every day now that was quoted in the Daily Telegraph. Nintendo, the gaming company, said the average person makes 760,000 decisions during the course of their lifetime. But if both pieces of research are correct, then the average person can only live for 22 days. So someone's got their research wrong. But the research on the 35,000 decisions, this went across the Internet. But if you start trying to track back, where did the research actually come from? You, you won't get, well, I haven't yet got to the origins because I'd love to know how they came up with that. And so I do think a lot of stuff that's churned out there as fact, we, we have to get better at our fact checking and taking a step back and, and not getting embroiled in, in and trying to, and I'm trying to do this myself, not being affected by whether people engage with my stuff or not and, and, and not thinking I've had a good day today because my video has been viewed X amount of times. Like, really? So one of the terms I used to have it pinned up above my desk is that fervent curiosity is more important than specialized knowledge. And I think that desire to know more and to be fervently curious, I love. Yeah, I like that. That's a good one. That's a really good one. I learned, someone said to me yesterday, actually, uh, is a, a prospect. He said, a, I've never heard this, but it's like, well, it makes sense. He was talking about how we all need to lift each other up in terms of like the, the allyship, the supporting one another, the going the extra mile, the not just looking after your own but deliberately choosing to, to go out and, and, and expand. He's talking about how a rising tide lifts all boats. And I thought that was quite nice. I'm like, I haven't actually heard that one before. Yeah. Yes, I, do, I have. And I do like that phrase is that we, we can, and we should all be lifting each other up. Um, and we can. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing I would say is someone that speaks about men's mental health, because I speak about men's mental health, it's not a kick in the teeth for the other gender and, and likewise uh, people standing up for women's mental health. It's not, I think it's important. And I do tend to like, even today I've, I've done a video on parental alienation. Um, it's important to remark, remember that mums and dads can be the victims of parental alienation and mums and dads can be the perpetrators. But because my video is intended for men, I'm talking about dads. And I think if we're talking, if you are talking about a certain culture and a certain gender and a certain space, I think it's important still within your content to reference the fact that actually there are others that struggle. Let's let's not let's not by accident create some kind of misunderstanding that this is some massive problem for men and it isn't for women. So I think it's important we reference that for sure. 
I think we started before we turned the um, recording on, Andrew, talking about parents and parental abuse even, and that perhaps that how that filters through into your attitude in life. And, and often it's not deliberate, is it? It's just that we carry patterns of behavior through from a previous generation and repeat them. And it's sometimes thinking about that and how do we break that cycle? No, absolutely. But and again, if we're thinking about men's mental health, well, why are men and boys? How are we going to deal with it? Again, sort of family issues, uh, stereotypes, culturally, these things need to be talked about. The more that they're talked about as part of our conversation in the pub, in family homes, in businesses, at networking meetings, the, the more I think we, we can make sensible progress. But it's being able to have these respectful debates when so many people carry so much pain is 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 easier is easier said than done so is one of the ways you're helping people is to uh enable debate around some of these issues what well, yeah i'd like to think so and i think some of the things i say i know we were talking before the recording around toxic masculinity for example we need to talk about that i i am mindful that of some research carried out by uh, the, the Center for Male Psychology, but they did some research on, on women and men uh, around their views on toxic masculinity and how they saw toxic femininity. And, and it seemed pretty clear from, from their research that women don't particularly like their gender being associated with the word toxic and neither do men. And actually, if we want to engage young men, actually, if we go in banging on about misogyny, the patriarchy, toxic, man, you just switch them off. I was talking to actually a Salvation Army trainer uh, only the other month, and he does a lot of safeguarding training. He says, whenever I have to mention it's part of the training, whenever I do, you can see all the blokes just switching off. And so I think we have to be a bit more clever in the way that we talk about these things. I think Andrew Tate simply fills a void. And I think we can fill that void with something better that makes Andrew Tate that kind of narrative meaningless. And there is a thing called gamma bias, particularly with regards to men, where I don't know if you've, you've heard of gamma bias, but it's where no. the, the, the actions of a very few are magnified no. so that you ignore the actions of the vast majority. They're really good. So we hear about how bad men are, toxic men, violent. And, and of course, these things need to be reported about in the press. But for example, the Thailand cave rescue, the divers on that hugely complex and courageous mission were all men. But nothing was made of the fact that it was an all-male diving team. There wasn't a headline in the paper, this man can boy power. They wouldn't have dreamt of saying that. Can you imagine the uproar? But yeah. but why, why aren't we celebrating male achievement? I think there is a fear to celebrate male. What if it's down to privilege? And I think we have to be bold in saying, no, let's celebrate good male behaviour, male achievement, because we need to fill that void with something that's not Andrew Tate. And at the moment, uh, a message of anti-toxic masculinity, anti-misogyny, that's not filling the void because it doesn't sound very cool if you're a young person. So how do we how do we raise up new role models, heroes, finding the examples of incredible male achievement and celebrating them, not being afraid? We should celebrate great female achievement as well, of course. But that for me is what I'm really that's why if you're going into schools talking about toxic masculinity, you have to be very, very careful in the way that you talk about it. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be talking about heroes instead of toxic? <laughs> I mean, it's reframing, isn't it? It's reframing. Yeah. It's not avoiding the issue, but saying, where, where are we trying to get to? What vision are we trying to create? Yeah, no, ab absolutely. It absolutely is. And, and I think 
you know, I, I'm all for more PHSE lessons and, and talking about this stuff in schools. I think that's helpful. I think it's helpful if men and women are, are drawn into that speaking training on it. I think we have a problem in schools. In primary schools, only 15% of teachers are male. In secondary schools, only 35% of teachers are male. And we know that positive male role models, that can have an impact on the behavior of young males. So, but dare I say it, how do you get men into the heel jobs, health, education, administration, literacy, that's going to take a whole bunch of funding. Now, something similar to what's been encouraging women into the STEM jobs, and we've still got a journey to go through with that, because I think only 25% of STEM jobs are female. Equality is obviously what, what we're aiming for. But could you imagine bursaries for wannabe male teachers, a, a thing that actually gave men an advantage in some way? I mean, that would be, that would cause, it would never happen, never happen. But how do we get men really into some of these teaching roles that is another factor to to consider in terms of creating more balance in terms of looking after women's welfare more men in teaching how are we going to do it robust action resource and the resource is the issue is where it's going to fall down i would imagine yes it would be wonderful to see that my granddaughter emmy is about to start school in september so i shall be even more interested in some of these issues when she does Uh, But I wonder then, Andrew, who the role models are. Who do you see as being leaders generally in in global leaders or leaders that you would think might inspire young people generally? Well, no easy answer, but I will give you an answer and a very personal answer. There is a network of BAME men within the NHS who have risen to high levels within the NHS against all the odds and barriers that they face. They're called, I'll call them out, they're called the Jabali Network. This, These are extraordinary men. Uh, and I had the privilege of doing a session for them and meeting them. And these were, uh, without wanting to be stereotypical, these were men. These were incredible men. And one of the things I felt coming away from that session is, like, I know they perform incredibly important jobs within the NHS, but wouldn't it be amazing if we could get these guys into schools? These guys, they're just living it day to day. They've overcome incredible barriers. And they these men are this incredible network, alive, passionate, engaging, and, of course, working in the NHS, midwifery, uh, CEO positions in hospitals. You know, there are there are everyday heroes. We just have to be minded to to find them. Maybe I should create my own network of male heroes, but... I think it's much needed, Andrew. I just don't think we uh, recognise them, know them when we see them. They are out there. They are in our communities. But, you know, we're so wrapped up in looking at these other um, characters or looking for these other characters that we're not seeing the good that's already there. It's not that it isn't there. We're just not recognising it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and I think there are many answers to how do we support men and boys I think as the the other one I would say which I'm seeing a bit more of now in organizations is a a desire to to give men networks within the employer on their terms to shape that network to maybe have some budget towards that network so that men can can just talk do stuff engage with one another and maybe talk about very private issues in on topics that they might not talk about easily in front of women and so i am seeing a movement towards men's networks as well which i think is encouraging not as a forced thing but just as a a giving men that that space 
Uh, and that's exciting to see. Right, Andrew, but I don't see that happening for younger men. I see that happening much more in the business world. Of, of it is. Yeah, yeah, it is happening somewhere. But but, but I think I'm encouraged <clears throat> this year, particularly talking to because obviously my the people that I sell to are sort of L&D leads, HR leads. They are the majority women, but not always. I'm excited to see them saying we've had a women's network for donkey's years. Nothing for men. We need to do something. We're doing something about it. So by the you know, that's exciting. And I do feel that we are seeing change i do think the men's mental health space is a very exciting space to work in but of course change will take time but but we can make it happen and we definitely will excellent well i know i know how challenging it is i mean i think women are better at self-organizing you know i belong to a book club and a choir and all of these things a yoga group uh, and they're not exclusively women but they are literally the majority of members of women and and the men just don't yeah, and it's a, I don't know why that. Yeah, you know, and I will finish just a, again a personal example. We so we've got the kids' nursery to thank for this. So my boys, the nursery they went to, organised their dad's football match, like because it was like was it the World Cup or something like that. Anyway, so a load of the dads play football. And we're like, oh, that was quite fun. Should we meet up at the park on a Friday? So we started meeting in the park on a Friday. And then loads of us were going and most of us from dads from the same school. So we're like, there's enough of us that if we played regularly, so we now we've got um, an agreement with a, a really super duper high-tech uh, AstroTurf. Uh, we've got about 40 dads. We usually get about 20 there each, each week. And we go for a pint afterwards. It's been going now for three or four years. And a lot of men will say for their mental health and physical health, it's, it's a, it's a lifeline. It's the only thing that they really do socially because of the working from home thing. And, and some of them are, are stay at home dads as, as well. And, and then it's their wives that go out and are the breadwinners. And so what, you know, when we do organize and we make that extra effort to go, let's play at the park. Oh, this is working. Let's hire an asset. Oh, let's go for a pint afterwards. When more, you know, amazing things can happen. It's, it's wonderful to be part of it. It's been good for my mental health as well. So yeah, encouragement on men to try and organize a bit more because some cool stuff can happen and it's important for our, for our mental well-being. Well, let's finish up and talking about baking then, Andrew. I mean, you've got into baking recently. I've always loved baking, but um, I think more than ever, I like to know what's in my food. <laughs> yeah, and that was it really for me. I think we'd watched, uh, I mean, we eat quite well anyway. We tend to cook from scratch, but not baking. And because we both work, my wife works for the NHS, a lot of the sweet stuff we buy is just shop bought. And we watched the program on the BBC uh, about uh, ultra processed food. And I was like, that's it. Line drawn. So we only bake our own bread. We've got a bread maker. It's a bit of a cheat, but, but I'm not buying shop bread anymore that keeps for weeks and weeks. And we bake all our sweet treats, uh, cakes, biscuits, because my boys have packed lunches. So if they want something that's sweet in their pat lunch, they're going to have to make it themselves with, with some help. And it's been really good seeing them bake, take a bit of responsibility. Their kitchen skills have come on no end. We're baking really nice things. I'm not much of a baker, but we've not yet had a disaster. It's going really well. We're baking all kinds of stuff. Apple and apricot treacle tart bars was, was last week. I was like, that's a bit strange. It was really, really good. Blueberry and cinnamon. You know, just really, and, and what we're, we're trying to bake slightly more complex things each week. But the, the value of it is, because I'm not an expert, I'm experimenting with them. There's joint risk. They are taking the lead with me just in the background. And it is a pain in the neck sometimes. It really does feel like that. But actually, we always enjoy the process. 
And uh, I just think it carves out for, for me, because I'm so busy, Sunday night's baking night, that's what we do. So like, and if they want the screen, last week they wanted the screen and said, no, it's baking night, turn the screen off. And then when they got into it, it's great. And they, they there's a satisfaction. So I, I think, again, and this is perhaps another topic for, for a, a, a podcast, we, we are addicted to convenience. Convenience rules okay, but convenience isn't necessarily good for us, mental well-being or physical well-being. And I think actually trying to step back from convenience, we've just taken on an allotment so that actually we can grow our own stuff. And I have been asked, well, we'll just go at Aldi, like it's easier, cheaper. Yeah, but actually stepping back from convenience and, and really understanding the processes that go into food, like one of the most important things in our lives is I think is so important and so for me it's partly a home baking thing it's partly a spending quality time with the kids thing it's partly a kickback at convenience there's all there's a number of reasons why I've done it but yeah it's going really well and uh, we will stick with it I could see you uh, initiating some men's baking groups coming up Andrew yeah but you won't see me on the Great British Bake Off because I'm not particularly artistic and uh, you definitely won't see me on there just just as a FYI I shan't put you forward, I promise. No, please don't. (laughs) Andrew, this has been fascinating. I feel we could talk for many more hours on this because each of those topics that we've touched on, we could deep dive into. Absolutely. It is a huge issue. It's a huge issue, not just for men, but for women and for society right at this time. And I thank you so much. What would your final message be that you'd like to leave people with? Men's mental health is a big challenge. It affects everyone we need to have we need to be able to have painful and difficult conversations that may trigger you because of what you've been through possibly at the hands of a man possibly not but we need to be able to have those conversations gently respectfully and for me the the thing with Nelson Mandela it's a very simple story but I, I use that as my kind of reference point now it's a great story to remember actually to actively try and find out and be curious about other people's stories even if it feels like their story reveals truths that are painful for you. Yeah. So just encouraging, respectful, open debate about painful things. We have to go there if we're going to make progress on a lot of our world issues. Yeah. Thank you. And where can people find you if they want to learn more about your work, Andrew? Oh, no, well, well, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I often say this when I'm delivering. My surname is Payne, spelled P-A-I-N. My initial is A. You would have thought my parents would have thought about that but they didn't <laughs> so uh, there's not many a pains on the social media so yeah so andrew Payne, yeah uh, connect with me on linkedin please do um and if you go to my website there's i tend to post like a short video each working day on linkedin about something that i'm you know so if you want to find out more just go and have a look at the videos and you give them a thumbs up as well if you like that'd be very nice thank you andrew it was a thumbs up from me for this interview it's been oh thank you very much but thank you for joining me today. thanks for having me listening to this podcast if you enjoyed this episode please share it with your friends and colleagues please do subscribe to the barefoot mediator podcast series and if you would like to access my free video series for managing in times of change challenge and crisis and download a pdf copy of my book how to beat bedlam in the boardroom and boredom in the bedroom please go to janegunn.co.uk slash video the link is in the show notes.